0: Hello and welcome to the 90 Minutes or Less Film Fest. My name is Sam Clements and this is the podcast that celebrates films with a 90 minute or less runtime. In each episode, a guest will select a film and join me to add to our ongoing fictional film festival, usually. Today is a little different because we're, we've are we just shown a film, an under-90-minute film at a festival. The film festival is real! We're living the dream. Uh, today, we are joined by comedian, writer, and fellow podcaster Robin Ince, Robin, thank you so much uh, for joining us today. That was a joy, I and mean, it was such—I've never
1: seen uh, argh, on the uh, on on the big ish screen before. <laughs> and, and what was so fantastic about it? Because I've watched it a few times. I bought it on DVD, never got the chance to see it at cinema. Is the quality of that uh, Robert Fripp soundtrack when you hear it—you it, know—it's it's an incredible film for the the people involved in it. But to actually—the last time I saw Steve Oram actually was at a King Crimson gig, <laughs> and and I still think—and Wayne Shepherd. Was there, who's in the movie as well, and I don't think any of them could believe that they'd ended up going, we made a low-budget film, and uh, yeah, Robert Fritt from King Crimson did the soundtrack. It was one of those really beautiful
0: kind of moments. I think that was, uh yeah, just, uh, there's a lot of great stuff on screen, in the soundtrack and on the screen. I think before we get to the film, um, it'd be great to just have a chat with you, introduce yourself to the listeners. Over the last, you know, you do a, you do a lot of work, you wear lots of hats, podcasting, writing, live shows. I guess live shows have been kind of out of the, uh, <laughs> off the menu for a little bit. This is our first podcast actually recording in person since February 2020. Um, so it's kind of wild. It's just nice to hold a microphone again and to see our guests and it's not being a Zoom screen. Well, well King's Place, where we're recording it,
1: the nice, this was actually where I did my last gig before the pandemic. And uh, I ended that gig explaining black holes to Ed Miliband. <laughs> and so then that kind of means that during the lockdown, more and more, I kind of imagined, is that what I actually did all the time? You know, because the last gig became the, the you know, d- is that what most of my life was? Most, most of it, me explaining different cosmological events to uh, former party leaders. But it wasn't, it wasn't. And I and, and also did a 25-hour uh, live show here uh, last Christmas as well, which was fantastic. Oh, well, I'm glad we have you back for this. But, yeah, it has been weird not, not doing any live gigs. So I've just been creating as much with, with my friends uh, Josie and, and Trent, just creating as much kind of... A, I mean, the nice thing was actually having the time to sometimes properly make podcasts. Like I started making a series for... Basically, what happened was I, I did an interview with someone about uh, a book they'd written about UFOs, and the interview didn't go very well, to be honest. Um, and, uh, and I thought, well, should I just get rid of the interview or should I turn it into a 12-part series podcast? And obviously, that seemed like the better option to do. It's the first time I've done a movie podcast called uh, uh, An Uncanny Hour, which was about not just movies, but things which I always think everyone's seen and then you find out that no, only you and seven friends have seen. And uh, and so we'd, we started making this podcast. Where in fact, Toy Wilcox, of course, who's, who's one of the stars of art, we, we did one all about Derek Jarman's Jubilee. Because I think even though for my generation, Derek Jarman, certainly in terms of the art house scene and as an activist and all those things, is someone very well known to me. My friend Grace Petrie, who's something of an activist as well, an LGBT activist, uh, she'd never heard of Derek Jarman. So it's things like that where I think, oh, I need to make shows about, and, and Dead of Night, which I would have chosen if it had been under...
0: 90 minutes, but it wasn't under 90 minutes, and uh, and, and things like that. It feels like this film is in keeping <laughs> with that theme a little bit. Uh, you've also written a book during that. Was this a pre lockdown book, The Importance of Being Interested, or a during lockdown book? going to
1: be written in 2020. Uh, but it wasn't going to have 100,000 extra words, which I didn't notice I'd written, which was a bit of a... Because that, that book comes out quite soon. And and so I... The trouble was that everyone... I mean, interesting watching that film because now in the context of the book that I've written, it does feel very much like a film that if John Waters approached Jane Goodall and said, why don't we make a movie together, that is the movie they would make. Um and both of those people John Waters and Jane Goodall have have, have kind of been influenced on me and the, and the book she's in the book I actually got this was a great thing because of lockdown no one had an alibi and so whether you were making podcasts or whether you're writing a book, if I'd find the email of someone, they'd go, yeah, I'm really bored. Just interview me. So so uh, the book started off, I, it wasn't going to have any kind of conversations in it. It was, was going to be, the book is kind of off the back of uh, a lot of the tours that I've done with Brian Cox and on my own as well, which is sometimes there are certain ideas that you hear about. And like when, when an audience first hear about the death of the universe, the fact that somewhere in a very, very, very long time, the, the, the universe may well die. And when people hear about the size of the universe, the possible lack of uh, the idea that we will ever communicate with any extraterrestrial life, all of those things can kind of give people existential anxiety. So I wanted to write a book which was kind of about the death of the universe, about the fact that we're connected to all the other living creatures on the planet Earth, uh, about ideas of kind of God and reality and these things which can be very disconcerting for people when they first hear them from a scientific perspective a kind of quite an upbeat look at why even ideas of our own physical death there are sometimes things that you can find which in a sense of reality so not necessarily you know moving into myth you can uh, you can still find something positive from them and Jane Goodall was one of the people that was just I mean that was interesting watching that film because Jane one of the things that she talked about uh, was the fact that she once saw... She saw some chimpanzee... One of my favourite things actually during lockdown as well was I did a show with her and Bill Bailey and Kat Hobater, who's a fantastic... Uh, out in the field in terms of looking at chimpanzee language and and, and understanding it more and more, very much started by Jane Goodall, you know, 60 years ago now. Um, and uh, and Jane taught Bill Bailey how to properly speak chimpanzee because she heard his chimpanzees kind of... <laughs> And she said it really wasn't good enough. And, uh, and that's the kind of beautiful thing that can happen in, in, in lockdown. So, yeah, that, that was the, the odd, odd link watching that film and thinking. And because she talked about this thing of seeing some chimpanzees um, going into a waterfall. And she said chimpanzees, generally their kind of relationship with water, they, they don't normally play in water. But they went into these, uh, into these waterfalls. She said it was really amazing. It, it was. It, it had a sense of, 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 of ritual and awe. She said, but then, of course, the thing that fascinated her most was that after they had been through that, the one thing that they couldn't do was then talk about what they had just experienced. And I think, you know, when you watch, ah, then you kind of at times there are certain things where you go, oh, yeah, that is the problem with uh, you know if you lose language even though language of course has all of its you know all the possibility of the transport of spite etc it also has that ability of being able to truly step into other people's minds I think if EastEnders was made like art it would be a lot better it it, it is like the greatest episode of EastEnders ever that I think
0: would love to see that I mean it is a it's a family drama I know you're a, you're a big film fan. When we reached out to you to uh, you know to talk about coming on the show, you sent over some amazing uh, suggestions. I, I'm really glad you, you settled on ours. but I think we could have done a good show based on any of your, your choices. I did wonder, outside of choosing films for an under-90-minute podcast, do you ever look at a film's runtime? Is that a big decision-maker point for you if you're going to the cinema or looking through the DVD pile at home? Not that much.
1: I mean, I agree with you that a lot of great films are ninety minutes or under. I mean, one of the things that the, the first film that I thought of when you asked me was Bad Day at Black Rock, the John Sturgis movie starring Spencer Tracy, which I don't how many of you've seen Bad Day at Black Rock And It's a really great movie. It's it's in nineteen fifty-six, I think. And it's one of those ones it's it's about eighty-six minutes long, I think. It's a beautiful and runtime. It just is perfect. It's about a man going to a town, one of those towns in the middle of nowhere where there's just a railway station and almost nothing else Lee Marvin and Ernest Borgnine uh particularly insidious characters in it and it's pretty much set of it's about 24 hours isn't it it's not much more than that and it's one of those films which is just it tells the story perfectly there's no fat on it at all because I mean I do sometimes go into a bit of shock when I have to take my son to a Marvel movie and I go three hours <laughs> Three hours of cloaks and lycra, and then men of my age going, Yeah, I think it's one of the greatest films I've seen. Well, (laughs) really, get out more, you know. Really, there are magnificent. And that's not to have a go at them, but I do feel that I mean I think they're fine. The Marvel, as I mentioned to you before, this I do Logan is a film that I'm particularly fond of. I happened to see Logan and War for the Planet of the Apes on the same flight once, and I was like, both of those are blockbuster films, which I think have true heart and real, you know, something in them which is a lot more than most of them but i've never understood that idea of of two hours or more of superhero movies so that will i will be like oh god you sure you want to go and see Endgame? and uh i mean which i think is fine but i, I have no i'm not one of those people who's going to bang on about how rubbish they are but i do occasionally worry about the fact that my generation have replaced sometimes fantastic beautiful artistic movies with having you know talking about what is fun pulpy chewing gum stuff as if it is Tarkovsky and that yeah there's a lot of people who still haven't seen Stalker and they're idiots <laughs> Do I, I should mention it was a lovely thing actually I'll just briefly mention Sean Locke who of course has, has died recently and and was a utterly brilliant comic and I think there's two things actually that link it I'm sorry my brain makes a lot of th- I recently got diagnosed and I'll explain that another time um, but the uh it, t- Sean Locke's 15 stories high I think has a lot of similarities to the style that we see in movies made by people like Steve Oram and Gareth Tunley and Alice Lowe um, in terms of being both kind of darkly comic movies but at no point using the normal language that you see in comedy cinema uh, or, or when it's on television, you know, 15 stories high looked beautifully like a kind of, it had a kind of loachish quality to it, whatever that might be and um, and and the fact that Sean Locke made all made a movie uh, with Andrew Cotting, an adaptation of a Zola book, you know, he made This Filthy Earth, which is an amazing thing. And, and and one of the things when you sometimes look at a comic like Sean Locke, who was truly I mean, you never knew where his language was going to go. You never quite knew what the you know what the punchline was going to be. Um, but what I loved about and, and I was reading an interview with him after and suddenly went ah his favourite movie was Tarkovsky's The Stalker. You know, and I think that I think Sean has one of the things that you see in that is that he was both a, a pop Popular Co- comedian but also was not afraid to love things that were intricate and strange and and you know if that makes if that is, has any link to what i started saying uh, two minutes ago
0: i think i think uh, for anyone who hasn't seen 15 stories high it is really artfully made and really cinematic so it's well worth seeking out
1: i always get whenever i try and recommend it to people i always start off with that bit where he, the, the the episode the plow where he rings up a pub and he goes hello uh, yes, uh, yeah, um don't know if you remember. me, I was uh, there last night. you probably bloke with the Scottish £20 note. Anyway, you know when you get drunk, sometimes you steal something from the pub. I've got your plough. <laughs> now that, as an opener, and all the episodes have those kind of things where a plough, that is... Uh, and then the fact that he took it across a graveyard and ruined the graveyard. And then, and then the paper writes
0: about how it was zigzagged. He goes, "I well, I dropped my keys? <laughs> well, why didn't you leave the plough behind? So we did not show Bad Day at Black Rock. Um, we ended up on R. What, uh, what was your deciding factor to, to bring R to London Podcast Festival? It, it was because I don't think that many people have seen it. And I think a lot of my other... Ch- I mean, the, the
1: other one, probably the closest other one. So, I mean, I would also love to have shown a Lynn Ramsey film, but you'd shown the only one that I think is under 90 minutes. Uh, yeah, you uh, were never really uh, here. shown the Shane Meadows ones. that are, But I think R was definitely the one that I wanted to show just because I think it's a really, really interesting piece of work made by uh, a group of, of people. I mean, you, you will have seen that Alice Lowe pops up in it, Baruncaro Shaughnessy, uh, lots of other people in there as well in small parts, all of whom have kind of created this really Fascinating British movie scene, and all of it. I mean, anyone? prevenge has been shown by you already. I think has yeah, it? It hasn't, but it is
0: under ninety minutes. Yeah, Revenge.
1: Who's seen Revenge? Oh, that's a oh, good turnout. <laughs> it's a, it's a remarkable. You know, Alice wrote. a Basically, I think she was six months pregnant. When uh, someone went, oh, Alice, by the way, we've got a bit of money. Do you want to make a movie? And she was like, oh, well, I'm six months pregnant. And then she suddenly gets this idea of the fact that, you know, the fetus is instructing her to go and commit these murders. And then at eight months pregnant, directs and stars in a movie. And these lovely things as well, like there are two stunt sequences in them. Like there's a scene in which she's crawling through uh, a, uh, a, a, a cat flap. And she was going to do it herself and then went, oh, yeah, I really am eight months pregnant. (laughs) And so I better not do that. But I think, you know, the ingenuity and and what she did with Steve, of course, with Sightseers directed by Ben Wheatley and also Steve and and Tom, I used to work with uh, quite a lot. Um, and some of the others. In fact, it was nicely Wayne Shepherd, who was in the film, who is the, is the bald head of the shop who uh, uh, starts masturbating after blowing his nose. I think that's probably the best way. If anyone's listening to this podcast and thinking, is this my kind of film? <laughs> it's the kind of sequence with a very long blowing your nose followed by masturbation sequence and uh, has two prosthetic penises in it. All of those details will now make you, you that's when you're going to make your decision. Um, but, but Wayne, you know, he's created, he did Gary Lestrange, which was a fantastic, and, and he's a really great musician as well. And, and Gary Lestrange was a kind of uh, new romantic character. Uh, and, and he used to do Ealing comedy. We used to do a, a, a show called Ealing Live when Ealing were going to kind of open up the film studios again, and that was Steve and Tom and Alice and Barunka and, and, and Wayne as well. And I couldn't remember whether Wayne showed his penis in this film, which fortunately he doesn't, but he used to do this fantastic character comic where people would be on stage, and then suddenly the doors at the back would open up, and it would be Wayne just charging out we can all hear you and I am trying to sleep over there and he was just wearing a little kimono and as he (laughs) shouted his kimono would come open and it was just this naked man in a kimono (laughs) screaming at the comedians on stage and and I think that fits in with a lot of the
0: kind of humor that you see in in uh, in art as well wow (laughs) At this point in the podcast, we'd probably play a jingle and read the back of the DVD. I wonder if you could do the honours, uh, Robin, and uh, and let's see what the marketing team have to say about Ah. Well, it's uh,
1: I still think, by the way, this was a terrible mistake. The title. That's the one thing which is when you recommend it to people, it's really hard to find this on the internet. You have to get the correct number of A's. So just I'm going to count out one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, H and exclamation mark. That's what you need to look up to find where this film is. Um, Five stars. This film is so joyous it makes you want to pour an entire bottle of vodka onto your crotch. Little White Lies. In a primate, primate-like society, a roaming alpha male and his beta head into town and make a move to take over. They hook up with a rebellious female and a deadly feud is ignited between the two tribes. Using entirely a language of grunts and gibberish, Steve Orum's debut feature is a celluloid primal scream, an anarchic, hilarious, disturbing and touching look at the human condition like nothing you've seen before. One of the most unusual, blackly comic, and ultimately disturbing British films in years. Just don't watch it after you've had your dinner. Den of Geek. Certificate 18, strong violence,
0: sex. Beautiful work. <laughs> Seventy-nine minutes, incredible runtime. They pack a lot into this. This was originally released in 2015, had quite a small release, premiered at Frightfest Festival, uh, had a very limited cinema run and then then sort of back to DVD. But this is this is Steve making a film off his own back. They shot it in two weeks, he self-financed it, and he he asked his friends effectively to be in this film. It's great. And, and it's, it's that lovely thing. It reminds me of um, Hollywood Shuffle. I don't know if
1: anyone's Robert Townsend who, who made this fantastic movie spoofing the kind of how uh, basically African-Americans were uh, used in films and the characters they played. It, had, it was about 1987. And I remember that one was made on. He just got every single credit card that he could and sometimes he would pay the cast and he would go, right, I can't actually give you money but does everyone want to go to the petrol station and just fill up their car? And you know, just finding these different ways of somehow giving people uh, some kind of, uh, of, of earnings from it. But I think it's, yeah that group of people in that film, and there's lots of comics in the background as well, and uh, Martin Sohn, who, was, who used to be part of the greatest show on legs, which some of you will be old enough to remember, the balloon dance which was basically three men of various different lumpen shapes and forms doing the traditional boom, boom 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 fan dance but with balloons instead and uh, and martin was kind of at the forefront of alternative comedy so yeah it's it's a it's a very nice film to watch as well for seeing how many people uh, involved are also tr- it's a bit like going into a really good record shop where you know that everyone who works behind the counter also has an interesting band you know it's like that kind of thing We're having that embarrassing moment where you're buying an album in a record shop and you realise you are actually buying it off the bass player who still has to work in a record shop even though they're brilliant
0: at the time did, did you hear about this being like, Steve making this did you hear from any of the cast that they're going to film this film with no dialogue and they just need to make ape noises for, uh, for a few I days I don't think
1: so and I wasn't offered a part which considering how much I helped them in their career um, <laughs> got them to a, um, no I, I I don't think I knew anything about it until it came out and I remember just sort of thinking oh brilliant Steve and also Steve and Tom have done some really interesting I think you can see them on YouTube You find because I think to some extent this gang of people are almost like the comic strip presents of the 21st century and that, and Comic Strip Presents, when I was 13 years old, which, you know, they were on the first night of Channel 4, which to me was such an alternative gateway to so many different ideas. And, uh, and and I feel that that's what they are like. And Steve and Tom did this fantastic comedy lab called Matthew and Tone, which has, I mean, that's the interesting thing. Look at the kind of British independent cinemas. Matthew and Tone has within it Echoes of Dead Man's Shoes, uh, but was actually, it, it prefigures it. In fact, I'm sure that Steve once went, I wonder if Shane Meadows saw our movie. You know, there's, uh, But Matthew and Tone has, again, just that really nice, slightly uncanny feel to it. It's the real world, and yet it's a world that's disturbed and uncertain.
0: Do you, uh, do you remember when you first watched this film? Was it at home on your own on a DVD? Did you yeah, with your it was family? On home on my own.
1: I, I literally, I, I went down to FOP and uh, on the day that it came out, I thought, I've got to watch that, which is what, if I missed that, uh, you know, I've seen some of them on the big screen, the same with The Ghoul as well, which uh, Gareth Tunley, who uh, is also part of that kind of gang, I mean, and Tom Meaton starred in The Ghoul. Um, so I do try and keep up with, with all of these releases because I, I think all of them have something interesting in them. And when you do go, when you go through one of those periods where you just have to watch lots of mainstream movies and you always know where each turn is, it's that thing, which is, it, it's the old, it reminds me a lot of, I think a lot of what's in contemporary culture it reminds me of the fact that when old comics used to talk about doing the working men's club circuit, they would say sometimes someone would go up and they'd be a bit too original and someone would just shout up going, tell us one we know. And that's what they wanted. They wanted the one about the parrot and the Alsatian. And I think that that can happen in lots of different forms of culture and in cinema as well. Sometimes I'll sit down and watch a movie. I've seen three movies called I See You. Not my choice. I don't have control over uh, the TV at home. And they're all thrillers in which you go, oh, Sylvester Stallone has bought some jewellery for his uh, new wife. She'll be dead within three minutes. (laughs) And step by step, oh, they've gone to a lunatic asylum. I see he's an English actor. So (laughs) just every... Every step of the way, and they're kind of they're perfectly serviceable. But I'm not. I don't want to be overly comfortable. It's what we talked about before in the green room, which is I like that fact that you. I like films or any form of art where everyone has a different experience and sometimes people will say oh i don't think that's what happened at all whereas a lot of of movies and tv series you know exactly how you're meant to feel you are this is the sad scene this is the happy scene he's the character i like that's the person i don't like and and i think you know these independent films they you, you don't have a clue what you're watching a lot of the time
0: Absolutely, it's a uh, constant surprise with something like this. Um, it's so rare to see long-form storytelling with no dialogue, and I, what I love about this film is, uh, for me anyway, after ten minutes or so, I just forgot they weren't speaking. I really got into the, the sort of silent, they were using their bodies, they were using the noises. You get what they're supposed to be doing. It's, it's such a feat. Uh, I think for if, if you've not read anything about this film, Steve Orham did write a screenplay, and the actors learned the lines. And then on, on set, they took it all away. And it was like, well, interpret those lines of dialogue in the grunts, in the gibberish. And that's why everybody's sort of doing their own take on it. There's no uniform language in this world. It's just what the actors, what came to mind with that little bit of direction.
1: I loved it. It reminded me of if anyone uh, saw Stuart Lee's uh, most recent tour, uh, Snowflake Tornado. Um, there's a very funny routine he does where he goes, you know, if uh, <laughs> if if Ricky Gervais was really, you know, saying the unsayable, it, you know, it wouldn't be what he's saying. It would just be like he'd just be there on stage going. <coughs> <laughs> and it goes on for about ten minutes and it's and it's like agonizing and 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 brilliant and uh and afterwards the friend that I went with when we she was saying Stuart is that actually scripted because there's a point where you go. There must be when you're on stage, going, "Oh no, I've done all the noises that human beings <laughs> can make,"
0: and it's a really interesting thing to watch. I'd love to know what the notes were on on this film. <laughs> no, it's not gibberish enough. It's not ape enough. Uh, I also think it really. I guess it, it. You know, I often think comedians are some of the best actors because, you know, it's a, it's a hard task sometimes. You know, uh, learning the routine and making things land on time. And I'd love to see a lot of really funny people, not. You know, using their mouth, their prime uh, you know, sort of organ for, for entertaining people, but they get to use all of their other muscles. And the performances in this film are incredible. Well, it's like Julian Barrett always carries with him such a sense of melancholy.
1: I mean, not merely in that. There's such a, you know, he really there was a point in the bush I think, where sometimes you would just, you know, he would look at Noel, and and there, there, there was this deep sadness. You know, it was such a perfect kind of double act. So I think, I think you're right. And even that, you know, the scene where 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 Tom gets killed in 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 this movie, it's just it's very subtly done. It's very nicely done. Just that whole kind of the, the dealing with the death, obviously, until the cutting off of the testicles and cooking them. Until <laughs> that point, it's very subtle.
0: of Being put into the bin. That's a good. That's a good shot. I think you're right, though. Julian Barrett for me is is, is one of the. Uh, he's he gives such a tender performance when he's caressing that Battenberg cake in the garden. That's such a loving moment before he goes on the killing spree and then watches the cartoon chicken at the end. I, uh, I also like how they embrace the, you know, the, in this world, everything works. We see buses, we see video games, we see uh, a cookery programme, um, but it's just a just language that, is, that is, uh, is different in here. But I like that Steve's embraced the documentary sort of style. It's like watching a wildlife documentary and there's lots of those uh, candid like close-ups on people's eyes, lots of really long takes as well.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I think the uh, and also I just I always wonder did he wait until it was going to rain every single <laughs> time because it is as you see Julian you know running around naked in the rain and then then playing football in the rain. It, I think it, you know it might have been enough because it works perfectly for the film as well, doesn't it?
0: I think Steve uh, Steve was saying when, when they were talking to Julian about the role he's like there's a there's a new scene and Julian's like yeah it's fine. <laughs> Didn't even finish a sentence. I was like get my bottom out. Done. <laughs> Um, apparently it's, uh, it's also shot in 4x3 one of my favourite aspect ratios lovely square thing um, it's, it's done that because you notice in the film they often zoom in on the character's eyes and it being square was just a lot easier to do that That was a fun, a fun tidbit from the director's commentary
1: that's a great thing I, I remember the, the, the Riverside Cinema in Hammersmith I don't even know if it's still there because I know the building was going to get knocked down so, but it was uh, when they show silent movies which are on that ratio and, and their screen was that was the whole room because it was just this perfect four by three, and I remember going to see Nosferatu there with uh, piano accompaniment, live piano
0: accompaniment, and it was just utterly immersive. it was brilliant. The world is it's, it's humans, you know, albeit with, with no language. I love that Steve's shown us sort of uh, what's going on outside of this family, the the cookery show. Is incredible. <laughs> I love seeing Toya Wilcox watching along, bashing a steak against the, uh, the the white kitchen door as she's cooking along with it.
1: Yeah, that that I mean, that's what the film's great about as well. Just establishing a full world very, very quickly. All of those little questions that you might have are, are are covered very, very quickly. About how does a world work? Is it possible to have a world without language, in or at least intricate language? And I think all of those moments And Toya's great in it as well. I mean, it's interesting. I I did one of, as I mentioned one of the episodes of of Uncared, yeah, it was a, it was jubilee which was her first movie and she was like almost a kid then and this was an incredible introduction to all of these kind of you know the the are the in Jubilee and uh, Richard O'Brien's in Jubilee Ian Charlson's in Jubilee um, a lot of the kind of you know the, the underground in, in some ways it, it, it always felt to me that scene not dissimilar to John Waters Baltimore kind of scene except it was slightly more art house than, than, than his world and then I watched her the other day also in Quadrophenia um, you know she was and and she's great in, in uh, I mean, there's a real sense of, of menace about her, isn't there? You know, that, that is a full Lady Macbeth performance.
0: There's a lot of, uh, you know, in the Ape Society, alphas and betas, and every character is in a pair, pretty much, in this film. And, and you get the sense Toya is sitting on the throne above all of these things. You know, various different husbands and, and, and mates come and go throughout the movie, but she's pulling the strings from behind the scenes. Yeah. Oh, it's a very sad that bit. I remember the first time that I saw the ending. It did feel it's a proper
1: horror movie shock ending, I think, because you're given a happy ending, and then the uh, the,
0: the stabbing and the, the chicken cartoon.
1: <laughs> well, that's again, Steve's. Um, just inventiveness. There's a thing that he did for anyone who's old enough to remember the, the TV quiz show 321. Um, there used to be weird music in the background when Ted Rogers would do the, you know, really arcane riddles that you're meant to guess, you know, whether it was a car or not. And Steve was involved in this fantastic short film, which is how they made the strange soundtracks, which is this weird fat man in, an, in a cellar. Just with all manner of different toys that he's kind of banging and winding up and moving, and this apparent, and then every now and again you just see Ted Rogers appear and then fade off again, as as if always there's a, there's a you know, this strange. It's Central Television. There was an underground lair where <laughs> all of the background noise for quiz shows was made by someone who may be dead or alive. <laughs>
0: In the uh, in this film with the music, you do we have we have an amazing soundtrack uh, for what we're seeing. But the characters in the film, when you hear their music, um, it's a lot more crude. I think Steve actually played all of the uh, in-camera uh, kind of music. That is, I mean, the, yeah, the, the the funeral scene is is one of probably one of my favourite funeral scenes in the movie. <laughs> top top five. <laughs> um, I love the uh, the the food. I mean, food plays a big part in in this film, and I guess it's you know exploring the sort of you know, ape society there. Uh, I mean, the menu looks horrible. Uh, a lot of, a lot of salt for some reason. We should say, when you say
1: menu, it includes cannibalism
0: yeah there's a there's a, there's a leg uh, severed leg that's lovely bit of toe gets <laughs> eaten there um, but, uh, but I mean I, I sort of love how on the day they must have you know given these very respected actors uh, some real food to play with and, and like Julian Rintut's going for it Toya Wilcox shoving her f- whole face into a bowl of gravy and then gets that whole um, the, the bowl of salt uh, poured over her as well
1: yeah I, th- I imagine they it was a really I mean but when you see for instance Steve trash the kitchen and stuff I mean that's also there's be- the beautiful idea that the hierarchy of this particular uh, ape culture will be based around your plumbing ability <laughs> is such a mag- I mean, because I always wonder if the reason that you see Julian Barrett's character ultimately kill everyone is because he sees Steve Orman blocking the toilet and sees a level of threat. So the idea that there's a level of threat as to unblocking the u-bend is uh, which also then of course plays into all of those cliches of kind of you know 1970s pornography as well because that scene where you've just got you've got the washing machine as you hear julian barrett come in and you know and there's the, the washing machine very high in the soundtrack and then there is tyre wilcox and julian ryan tutt there going at it hammer and tongue against the washing machine and he
0: realizes from that point my time is now over and then he gets to do his uh, his amazing, very expressive, sad face. Poor old Julian before he killed everybody. Have you have you had a chat with any of the uh, the cast since seeing the film? Have you have you got to talk to them about uh, you know doing their best ape on camera? Not really. I mean, I've seen them, but I've I've never. i my
1: my conversation is generally just about how much I love the movie. I've never really. I've never had any deep conversations about. Uh, I mean, I mean, Tom was always a very brilliant physical comedian. Uh, as, as I mean, th- they all are in that, but Tom would have... Tom used to do this fantastic... In fact, it's interesting because there's a scene in which he balances his testicles on top of uh, Julian Ryan tutt 's head, and that's not the first time Julian... Me- uh, Tom, many years ago, had some testicles that were made for a comedy character who would always be doing kind of kung fu, and then his testicles would hang out. So the fact that he still... And he used to do this character called The Baron. And The Baron was kind of dressed in this, uh, like, almost Elvis 68 comeback special leather, right? And he was the most evil man in the world. I'm The Baron! I'm The Baron! I'm shooting AIDS into your eyes! I'm The Baron! I'm The Baron! Right? And uh, and we did that in a pod in the, of the Millennium Wheel. And uh, it was fantastic. It was this show I used to do called The Book Club uh, which uh, Josie Long used to do as well and my mate Martin White he was an accordionist and stuff and, and there was some kind of special event for a charity where every different um, pod had, had a different performer doing something and they said would you do The Book Club in there? I think everyone had hoped to get Damon Albarn because sometimes they'd look out of our pod and go someone's got Damon Albarn <laughs> playing the harmonica right? But it was so to be in a pod with him doing this really and, and what was beautiful about it was there would always be a bit that he would be as evil as possible and then he'd just get a bit breathless I'm I'm, I'm cutting off your cocks with my uh, oh god and then we did a gig. 15 years later, I saw him and I went, oh, my God, Tom, you've got the... He goes, yeah, I've not done it for years. I'm, I'm going to do the the Baron tonight. And immediately I thought, I wonder how far he will be able to do it before he's genuinely exhausted. And it was that beautiful thing of seeing that a young man of 30 could leap around the stage range. And within three minutes, I thought, none of this is acted now. He really is. <laughs> but, it, but he always had this incredible, you know, that... that, that and, and both of them, the way that you watch them playing together... Um, So much, I mean, that's what I always find, again, the, the bit when you remove language from a film, like Ingmar Bergman's The Silence, which is part of what's sometimes called the Faith Trilogy, you know, and that is in a world where these two women and a child are now in a town, in a city where they don't know what the language is and they don't understand it. And in fact, the language being spoken by the characters who live in that territory is a made up language. Much And quite similar to some of the made up languages you sometimes hear in David Lynch films, um, I think also in his, his, his series On the Air. Um, and it's such an interesting film that the, the language plays no part in it and it doesn't matter. And I, I've always found that interesting sometimes when I'm, I'm doing gigs in, uh, in in countries you know like Norway, for instance, and then I'll go and watch other comics. And there's, there's, there's a great uh, festival called the, oh, what's it called? It's not called, uh, the Crap Festival. Uh, I don't know why they do it, 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 which is run by some people who a fantastic Norwegian comedy group, which they're literally called the Norwegians of comedy, which <laughs> is the most brilliant name. <laughs> and they're doing very well now, actually they used to run this fantastic festival some of it you would understand. I remember on the first night I got there with, with Josie and I think Daniel Kitson was there as well and we went to watch this show and one of the scenes was a man in a white suit with a stepladder and the, he was doing a sketch in which he played a man who masturbated God. And so he had a big bu- bucket and he would go up and then we were meant to be believing that there he was God's enormous penis. And that one was quite easy to understand. Um, LAUGHTER But some of the other bits, you would have no idea what was was going on. But eventually you get into a whole rhythm of so many different, and, and it was, there was a, a great guy, a guy called Lars, that On the first night he did this sketch where he shaved off half of his head, so he had a beard, shaved off half the beard and half of his scalp as well. And about four days later we went out for lunch, and Lars still just had half his head shaved. <laughs> I said, Lars, you've got half your head, head shaved, do not you? He, he, he goes, yeah. I, I said, you're not going to, get the other half certain matches. He went, it's oh, a bit of a problem actually because what happened was uh, my girlfriend is doing a hairdressing course and I'd forgotten that I'd promised she could use me as a model. So she was quite annoyed that I'd had half it shaved off but I promised to keep the other half so at least she can work on that. And I said, um, Lance, but this isn't, you're not just a comic, are you? You've got a, like a normal job as well. He said, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm also a mental health nurse. <laughs> so he had been, he was a mental health nurse wandering every day into the hospital with half his head shaved and... Yeah. How are you? And how are you? <laughs> how are you? <laughs> how are you? <laughs> but yeah, I love it. But it was such an interesting thing. Again, because I, I, I think with a lot, of, a lot of English language kind of art forms, there's a huge amount of language when it's not always required. I mean, that's one of the things that I love about things like the films of Takeshi Kitano. I think when you watch his movies, there can be long scenes which are, are predominantly silent and yet entirely tell you. There's a beautiful bit in Fireworks, I think it is, or Hannah, Hannah B or Hanna but I think it's also translated as Fireworks, which is just him sat on a bed, a hospital bed, and his wife's just in the bed and I think he's having a cigarette, actually. And that's it. And it's just a long shot. And you don't need any scene goes, goes, uh, oh, hello, I'm the doctor. I, can I have a word with you? I'm afraid your wife's very, blah, blah, blah. It, you don't need any of that. It's this beautiful just, and, and I think that's a, you know, it's, it, that's one of the, another reason that I like art uh, is just because I think we, we do rely too much on, you know, very often tell, not show.
0: Absolutely. I think it gives you, uh, it makes you watch it in a different way. You're using your brain in a different way, uh, which is quite fun. I, I I feel like even though it's only 79 minutes long, it does take you on quite a journey and gives you quite a, a mental workout, uh, this one. Uh, this is also one of the few 18-rated films that we've had in our uh, our festival. You mentioned Well, I'm an edgy comic. I'm known <laughs> for that. And, yeah. You mentioned Shane Meadows earlier. I think the other ones are probably all Shane Meadows films. Dead Man Shoes is in the festival already. That's quite violent. Lots of effing and jeffing as well uh, in that one. Well, Dead Man's Shoes also of course has a link to to this again looking at the Shane Meadows back and forth
1: link is that beautiful bit where Julian Ryan Tutt uh, wakes up and finds out he's got things drawn on his face and Dead Man's Shoes again is a fascinating movie for having scenes in it which are highly comic and this is actually again going back to Takeshi Kitano as well. One of the things that I really like in films is films that can be both bleak and violent and comic, but do not have to make the violence comedy. It's one of the things that I sometimes have a problem with Tarantino. Is go really funny scene where a man gets his brains blown out and everything. Whereas I find it much more interesting when you have something that appears to be highly comic, and then you're suddenly hit by actually the what, what it means. And and those that scene in Dead Man's Shoes where it turns out Paddy Considine is basically broken into a house and he is painted on face. And made everyone look like clowns. And you've got Gary Stretch. I think probably the first scene we see, Gary, or maybe the second scene with Gary Stretch in it, you know, who also, for an audience would know as, as, as a boxer, who I think only lost about, about two bouts. And so you see Gary Stretch, and he's got a clown's face on.
0: And it's funny and it and it's incredibly dark as well. And he's driving that little that little car, like clowns in Brilliant, the mini.
1: Brilliant, the two CV thing. That's a masterpiece.
0: This is a, isn't it? It's a build as a comedy horror. I, I find it really funny, but they don't skimp on the the, the horror element, either like there's some really effective uh, gore in this film. The prosthetics are just as good as you'd find in, you know, a, a Ben Wheatley movie or, or you know, a, a top-notch British horror film. And uh, I sort of love that they've they've gone to the effort, you know, to, to make the jokes land. You have to have a very authentic fake penis, or uh, you know, a particularly, you know, quite a large load of uh, fake ejaculate to go onto Prince Harry's picture uh, during that scene. And I just love that Steve's put that attention to detail. In <laughs> and I do, because I, I can imagine that
1: for some people in the audience, when Noel Fielding lost his penis, because of course he's adored, you know, as well, that was like, oh, why can't it be one of the other characters to have his penis bitten off? Um, it's, yeah, that is, because it, that reminded me again when I mentioned John Waters, I think that was because the last, uh, the, the, in Desperate Living, uh, which is uh, Divine's not in it, but it's an incredible cast of uh, all the usuals, Mink Stole and Edie and Massey, etc. And that has a, uh, a a particularly kind of you know debauched castration scene, not a debauched castration, not not a fun upbeat kind of you know, and that and it, yeah, that, the same with because it's interesting. I'd not realised you were saying that Noel Fielding had come from Glastonbury the day before, and this was uh, I I spoke to Noel ages ago about that. We were doing uh, it was actually when I interviewed him for my last book and. Um, Noel had been on stage with Kasabian uh, on the Pyramid stage, and Noel gets a huge amount of adrenaline. Right, Noel is—it's uh, it's like an interesting when the when the boost used to tour at the end of like an arena show. Julian just go, oh, I'm just gonna go and have a curry and just relax, I think. And uh, Noel would be like, oh, I gotta go out and do things, right? And he'd get really excited, and uh, and he does get a huge amount. So he he'd been with Kasabian. He had no battery in his phone and he had a taxi driver that couldn't speak English. So he like had four hours of desperate to say, I've just been on the pyramid. And he had nothing. And, and then the fact that he was coming back to do that as well, to, to think not only can I not express my delight at being on the pyramid stage, but tomorrow I'm being castrated, seems tremendously unfair. <laughs> and I'm sure Freud would have much to say about it.
0: Nice to see him in a you know, he's, he's he's one of the least flamboyant characters in this film and, and I love the idea you know, Steve must have had good fun dressing him in a very bla- like beige jumper and, and uh smell fitting clothes and uh, yeah, you're the, you're the shop worker. You're not the manager well, he's got <laughs> such a, it's, He has got such. a face that can be very ominous. I mean, I've always found Noel's
1: faces. I was wondering, you don't know this, too. you? Be, I don't know if anyone noticed in the credits. I was wondering if the painting that eventually gets thrown out the window, whether that was one of Noel's, because I, I know Noel is a fantastically
0: interesting painter as well have to ask we'll ask Steve <laughs> I think the living room is actually Steve's real flat uh, for the uh, one would hope, the to be place. honest one would hope <laughs> that
1: someone in the cast owned that because yeah. <laughs> it is one of those things that if you watched it and you went do you remember we uh, lent our house to that film crew what the one with all the p- yeah the one with all the piss in it and uh, that yeah. party
0: all the, uh, all the naked people in
1: <laughs> I, th- I think that did happen with John Waters I think the the scene in Pink Flamingos where they curse the
0: furniture by licking it all um I think the people eventually went.
1: John, we didn't know that. Okay, well, thanks, John.
0: One of the other stars of this film, I think, is the uh, the, the soundtrack. Um, it's it, it sounded amazing in uh, in the speakers here, but the uh, King Crimson projects uh, sort of provided a lot of the music uh, for this, and uh, it just adds like a level of surreal joy to the film. Yeah, it's an, it's unusual, isn't it? It's it's uh, and
1: I remember w- when I went to see King Crimson. I I I've, I don't know that much about them, uh, and and I went to see them in quite a small. G- I mean, it's incredible. This was the one that that Steve was at as well because they've got three drummers out front. They're right at the front, and it is. I don't know if anyone's watched a band with three drummers. But it's re- because they're all doing the same thing at the same time. Most of the time, it is—it's truly hallucinogenic. Mm-hmm. Eventually, your because br- your brain can't quite contemplate why that's going on. And it was—I think of, of most of the gigs that I've I've seen, I put it in the top five in terms of the passage of time, bearing no relationship to actually. It was like, how could that have been two hours? They only did three songs, and it was like, but and they're an incredible three songs, and that excitement. But I—I find—I mean, I love the idea of Robert Fripp. Because he's got such an odd. His actual public face is li- like he, he won't do much publicity for a King Crimson album, but he did appear on Mr. and Mrs. Celebrity Mr. and Mrs. <laughs> with Toya Wilcox. You know, Toya went, Robert, I want to do Celebrity Mr. and Mrs. All right, then, darling. And I love that. For <laughs> someone who has been one of the great inventive musicians of the last 50 years as well. He just it just looks like a, a nice old man who comes on and he's got his guitar and he's got got—he's got a chair, which he's probably designed himself, so it's the most comfortable chair. And then he just starts playing the guitar and the way that it just fades in and you're drawn into it. It's, yeah, it's... It, I, I find him, he's exactly what you want. At no point do you go, look, who's that crazy eccentric artist? He's just got a little, little old man coming in. Did he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's uh, about to change the entire possibilities
0: of what music might be. Well, that's good, isn't it? Yeah. (laughs) Love to imagine him at the uh, the Fright Fest premiere back in twenty fifteen. Uh, we should we should bring our, our chat to a, a a bit of a close. But before we do, do you have a favourite scene in this film?
1: I think it is. I I uh, I think both the, the scenes of ceremony are great. I I I, I think the, the the wedding sequence is is brilliant, and I do think probably the the funeral sequence with the, just the way the tire joins in with the strange drone and this awful kind of you know bad violin always works, doesn't it, in a comedic sequence? So yeah, I think that might be it.
0: The that, that, that violin kills me. I love that love that out-of-tune violin. <laughs> I love the um the sitcom scene, the, the sitcom they're watching towards the end with Tony Way and Alice Lowe. Oh, Tony Way's so great. And, of course, he pops up in Sightseers. I think he's the
1: first person to get murdered in Sightseers, as far yeah, as I know. you right, yeah. Um, again, that's what I love, is all these faces that are just constantly this incredible rep cast, and then Alice just leaping up and down. But I, I like slapstick where you can't quite work out if it even is slapstick. So that, that non-fall where his legs just kind of buckle a little bit. And then that with the huge, there's the, the something, and, and him just sitting on a chair and just doing that. And that's all that's required. And that's incredibly inventive as well, to go entirely the opposite direction of normal slapstick into almost just this,
0: what is this white noise of of physical so minimalist it's kind of apologetic slapstick (laughs) but it it does really work if you own the the DVD or Blu-ray would would recommend picking it up there's the full sitcom uh, on there as a special feature which is about 10 minutes of Alice and Tony Way having a nice time there's also the full cookery show Uh, you get to see a few more recipes that didn't make it into the film Right, well, Ah! is in our 90 Minutes or Less Film Festival, which is an incredible addition. Nice to have a, a Steve Orem film uh, in there. Now, we're screening this uh, at a film, at a festival, not a film festival, podcast festival, uh, but in our in our fictional uh, world of the 90 Minutes or Less Film Fest, uh, we always like to ask our guest if I could give you a, a blank check, Robin, to put on your own fantasy screening of this, uh, maybe at a favourite venue or somewhere you think would complement uh, the film. Uh, where would you like to host a, a screening of Ah! Oh, that that's hard, isn't it? I mean, I, w- I would like to... I mean, somewhere like the,
1: the, uh, the Albert Hall, where Robert Fripp would actually play it all live on that enormous organ that they've got. So I would love to have that that I think and and also obviously I would love to have it in in you know Gombe uh, forest as well with Jane Goodall introducing it and then and then I mean it would be wonderful to see with an audience of various kind of higher primates to see you know and orangutans and chimpanzees and their reaction so I think that would probably be it I would like to have the Albert Hall with Robert Fripp playing the organ and the audience entirely made up of uh, higher primates
0: <laughs> I think my uh, my producer flourished for that maybe uh, well I would insist on Black Tie. You didn't know quite how... You're, when you said blank check... I mean, that is... Yeah, you're pushing the limits of it, but uh, but I, I, I love that in the... Uh, you know, it suits the film, I think. Compliments the film. If you had to uh, decide a, maybe a, you know, a menu, some s- drinks and snacks to go alongside this film, what would you like the Royal Albert Hall to serve?
1: Oh, cannibalism. I would, yeah. It would be various... <laughs> there's various politicians on my list of people that I would feast on the flesh of, and uh, yeah, so it would probably be them. Maybe we could serve them from a wheelie bin. I've always found... I've found cannibalism an interesting thing because it really can be a dividing point in a conversation because um, i've always uh, you know I'm, I'm i'm a vegetarian i know i should be vegan but i'm vegetarian and but i i've always thought i would be very interested in knowing what human flesh tastes like and people sometimes people really recoil uh, at that but i think why wouldn't you be intrigued they're all wondering it yeah. secretly yeah it's the thing <laughs> every you know i never go on a good airline Whenever I'm flying over the Andes, I always ch- pick the cheapest airline <laughs> possible. There's Got to roll the dice. Yeah.
0: <laughs> uh, and if you could invite one special guest to, to maybe do a Q&A after the film, if you could talk to one of the creators in, of, of this project, who would you like to get on stage at the Albert Hall? Well, again, actually, who I would get on would not be someone involved
1: in this uh, film. It would be, I would love to get uh, Jane Goodall. Uh, to, I, I'd be fascinated to know what she would make of it, she's got a tremendous brilliant sense of humour, she's a very very entertaining person, I would love to get her and Kat Hobater as well who I mentioned before who, who is uh, uh, this expert on primate language, because it's really intriguing how much further, you know th- there was lots of in, the, in those early days there were lots of kind of gestures where they're oh that means go up that tree or that means climb on my back but now they've seen that lots of other gestures it's far more intricate in terms of the content of, of what each movement means, so yeah to get get Cat Hobater and,
0: and Jane Goodall. Oh, you could do a proper talk afterwards. Very in-depth scientific talk. I want to find out, She, I'm going to see if I can find out if she has ever seen this film. If not, let's send her a DVD. I think she'll get a kick out
1: of it. <laughs> well, that's why, look, so when Gary Larson did that... Uh, um, lovely cartoon of because uh, he's always been fascinated with, with, with Jane Goodall's work and it's, uh, um, it's a female uh, chimpanzee grooming her male partner and just picking up a blonde hair and going, ah, I see you've been with that tramp Jane Goodall again <laughs> right? And, and the Jane Goodall Institute or whatever it was called at the time was, was like
0: quite offended and then Jay Goodall saw the cartoon, she went, it was brilliant, and she loved it. She <laughs> thought it was a really great cartoon. Oh, I think she'll love this film then, that sounds great. Uh, well, thank you so much, Robin, for contributing ah to the 90 Minutes or Less Film Festival. It's a match made in heaven. <laughs> thank you very much for having me along. Cheers. <laughs> big thank you to the staff at King's Place, excellent uh, technician here, and a big thank you to Zoe and Becca for putting us on the bill. <laughs> Thank you for listening. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your podcatcher of choice. You can also listen on our website, 90minfilmfest.com. That's 90minfilmfest.com. You can contact us there or on Twitter and Instagram at 90minfilmfest. The podcast is produced by Louise Owen and me, Sam Clements. The show is edited by Louise Owen with sound mixing and additional editing by Luke Smith. Our music is by Martin Ostrich and our artwork is by Sam Gilby. And we'll be back in a couple of weeks.
1: a proud member of the Stripped Media Network.